You are listening to episode 8 of The Transport. We need weapons. Lots of weapons. The Transport by Alex Ames You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Where do we come from? The transport is moving as planned. Sina and Lieutenant Kimmick check out the road ahead of the transport and run into the local sheriff. It does not end well for the sheriff in the trunk of his own car. Leo starts his workday alongside Eva. Both investigate the mystery of the vanishing co-worker. They end up in front of the mysterious secret lab door in the basement. They enter the secret lab, find their co-worker Wendell, maimed and dead. They are discovered by their workers and have to witness a conversion, but are able to flee eventually. Leo and Eva discover that it's not good to be too curious, especially when your co-workers turned into strange zombies. The converted humans almost capture them, but thanks to Eva, she and Leo can get out of Dodge. The Legion analytic converts under Herbert's and Smitty's command take a trip in a school bus into the desert to get into position, waiting for things to happen. Chapter 23 Leo Who are you? Leo panted as they ran upstairs and through the lobby. Suddenly, every co-worker looked like an assassin to him, like in a John Carpenter or Stephen King movie where scary things happened to ordinary people. Yeah, Mr. Ordinary, where are you now that I need you? Boring is so good. We take your car, Eva commanded, after they had burst out into the open and had run onto the oversized parking lot. They made a clean escape. Leo drove and Eva constantly checked in the mirrors for the first mile if someone followed. No one did. It was a perfect workday morning in veracity with people going about their businesses. They will not come after us, Eva said calmly, not out of breath, not even slightly flushed. Leo still heaved heavily. How do you know? Hell, I would come after us, after what we've witnessed. They need to follow their plan. We are a distraction. There are more important things for them. Leo wiped sweat from his face with his hand. Police, we must alert the police. Forget about the police. You realize how crazy we would sound? She imitated another person. 
So you say the management of your company has been zombified, attacked you and did something really ugly to a co-worker next door? And all this in a secret lab in the basement? When you put it this way, Leo was not sure about anything anymore. It sounds more like a straight jacket than an investigation. And even if the sheriff took us seriously and started investigating, he would be led downstairs and killed like your friend Wendell. Are you some sort of undercover agent? Leo eyed her from the side, careful to drive straight. You ask too many questions. That woman, those screams. Leo lost it and started crying. He drove off the road onto a supermarket parking lot and jumped out of the car. He sucked in fresh air and then lay his head on his arms, leaning on the car's roof. Damn it, this is so crazy and you are so cool and I... <laughs> he sniveled. I don't mean bad cool, kick-ass cool, that's what you are. Eva had gotten out too, glanced at him over the car roof and then came over to the other side. She grabbed him by the shoulder. Leo, listen, you need to help me. I know how to fight them, but I am bound by your structures. We can fight them together, but you need to stay calm. Calm? Who are you? Bound by my structures? What structure are you talking about? My capabilities, my talents are not unlimited. I am good, but not that good. Leo waved his hands. Them? Who are them? My co-workers are dead or gone nuts and are trying to kill us. I can't help you. But you can help me. Whatever is happening is happening today or tonight. Leo stared at her white eyes, his hair a wild mess, still panting from the exertion of the run. Dark patches of sweat had materialized all over his shirt, snoot running from his nose. Oh man, watch me. I'm going to faint. I'm going... Eva took the neck of his t-shirt and cleaned up his face gently. Then she stood on her toes and gave him a kiss on the mouth. That shut him up. Then she slapped him. It felt as if hit by a bundle of steel cables. His head was cleared instantly, panic gone, but his skin and teeth hurt like hell. He held the left side of his face. Sorry, I kissed you. Not professional, he muttered. Eva looked at him without smiling. I kissed you and hit you to get your attention, to clear you up. I need your help. Drive that car. As, as soon as the fireworks subside, you kissed me. I love you. Shut up and drive, Leo. Where are we driving? They were cruising down Main Street at a leisurely speed and Eva was constantly glancing at her watch. We need weapons, lots of weapons. There is a sport box mega store four hours from here in Albuquerque. They have hunting gear of all kinds, I guess. Nothing here in town? I'm not a specialist for guns and hunting, sorry. And I don't own a gun. There's one or the other pawn shop in town. 
I have never needed one, but I doubt that they have lots of weapons. Small caliber stuff or hunting guns. And we need ammunition too, I guess, and money to buy it all. Not cheap. I don't want to lose that much time. We don't understand exactly what we are up against, and there must be a better way to obtain firepower quickly. Are there any weapon lovers or collectors in town? No. I know people who own guns, but most of them have maybe a cult for home protection or small caliber guns like for shooting vermin. Big guns are with the sheriff's department. Leo laughed dryly. Or we need to find some drug distributors. They come loaded. At least the guys running the show in town, the distributors. Drug dealers? Eva looked interested. No, the dealers are your everyday junkies on street corners. I doubt that they can afford a gun. The distributors are the real criminals, some step higher up in the supply chain. In veracity? Yeah. There is a group of white supremacists that give the DEA a lot of troubles. Read an article in the Veracity Mirror online recently. No evidence, but a strong suspicion. The arms possession seems legal though, second amendment and everything, and they appear to be very careful how they run the drug business. Intermediates only. They are under observation, but the initial investigation had gone nowhere so far. Where do they hang out? Just a minute, that was a joke. I repeat, a joke. We do not mess with the local Nazis. You mess with the local distribution, then you mess with the Mexican drug cartels who supply them. I get jokes. This is not a joke, Eva said. Organized criminals usually have a good armory, state of the art, exactly what we need. Time out! Leo stopped the car in second row. He was too scared to drive. How do you know what we need? I feel left out here. We are a team, right? And a team should work together. Where do the drug distributing white supremacists live? Leo threw up his hands. There, she does not listen to a word I say. This is already like a 20-year-old marriage. You've been married? No, but we are not married. But hell, I feel like it. Where do the drug distributors live? She's an insistent girl, of course, I don't know. The last time I bought relaxation weed was from a small-time dealer on the corner of Yucca and 28th. But that was three years ago. The shit was so bad that I puked the rest of the night. Cured me for good. Then let's go there and ask him whom he got it from. She, she was a she. Yucca and 28th, we go there. No discussion possible. All for the lady. A guided tour of veracity, CD on the belly. Yuka and 28th, coming up. Leo ignored the honking behind them and made a U-turn. There is no arguing with you. It's important that we get weapons. Good weapons, Eva repeated, typing on his smartphone. Lots of weapons. Chapter 25 Leo The corner of Yucca and 28th was a dump. 
It was on the eastern part of town, and the neighborhood was a civilization barrier between the inner city core and the trailer parks and empty buildings that stretched outside of East Veracity. Once a regular neighborhood, it had seen a massive decline during the financial crisis and the following opiate crisis. The parked cars did not appear as if they had moved in a long time, most wheels deflated and the trash pickup had been neglected for a while or forgotten. Man, this looks even worse than the last time I was here. They rob us, steal my car, maim and kill us. Perhaps not in that order. No through traffic dare to make it here. Few people in hoodies, tees and sneakers hang around, checking smartphones, shooting words. Anyone who still lived here had windows shuttered up. First glances came in their direction. Eva got out of the car and looked around. How does a white supremacist look like? Two heads, high heels, pink sweaters? Leo helped out. Eva gave him a long, you are not helping, don't test my patience look. I don't know, bald heads, Nazi swastika tattoos, t-shirts with racial slurs, Doc Martens shoes, baseball bats. Eva stood straight again and scanned the neighborhood. Negative, your dealer girl around? If you want to score, I bet you'll be able to just ask about anyone here, Leo said, looking around nervously. Shit, they noticed us. Get back into the car. Eva turned her head as a lanky black kid in grey hoodie and overexpensive sneakers swaggered over to them. Need something? Are you selling drugs? Eva asked. Leo cringed. Let me do the talking. You'll land us into jail or a coffin. Listen to your man, babe, the dealer said. But I'm a man of peace. What can I do for you? You can help us to have a good time? Leo asked. Good time is my middle name, my man. The youth grinned and beamed a row of black stumps at them. How well do you want it to be? Something reliable and classic, nothing experimental. Leo felt as if he had landed in a Netflix series. Again the grin. Classics are so yesterday. Got some great pills against the blues. Where do you get them from? Eva interrupted. The youth took a step back, raising his arms. Oh, I'm the man here for good times. I don't deal in information, I serve the public. You interested or not? His defensive posture resulted in three other guys standing up from the doorsteps of a rundown townhouse, turning towards them. We are, Leo said, urgency in his voice. We are not, Eva said, and stepped forward and grabbed the man's thumb in a lightning-quick move. The youth gave a subdued squeal of pain. Where do you get your drugs from? Eva asked once more. The three other guys approached Eva and Leo faster now, clearly not happy. Eva, stop this shit, you'll get us both. Leo cringed when Eva punched the youth in the throat, let him fight for breath. He slowly sank to his knees, eyes already bulging from the suffocation. His three friends fumbled in their pockets for weapons. 
watching Eva fight, who was watching a ballet. Effortlessly, she passed the remaining distance towards the three newcomers. The hands of the dealers were all busy in pockets on waistband level to get to their weapons. Eva knocked two of the heads together with a force that Leo swore he heard their skull bones crunch from the impact. Both guys went down as if switched off. The third man, a fat, ugly kid with baggy pants, had his gun out, finally a sub-nosed revolver which Eva grabbed and held on the drum to block the cocking. Fat Ugly realized that his weapon had been reduced to a piece of useless metal and then found out that Eva was stronger than him. She started twisting the gun, trapping his right index finger in the trigger guard. She brought the finger to the breaking point, producing whining noises from her victim. Where did you get your drugs from? she asked politely. Max! Max! Locally! I don't have the number! The man screamed as Eva twisted a little more. Kurt has the number on his cell! On his cell! He pointed with his free hand to the first guy that had approached them. Eva nodded at Leo, who complied and got out the cell from, from the back pocket of the suffocated dead man called Kurt. Gary, look up, Gary, with an A! Fat Ugly volunteered. Call Gary, Eva said to Leo. The phone was not code-locked and Leo found the number all right. It was the only number on the phone, a burner just for supply chain transactions. He was about to press the call button when he stopped. What do I say? Improvise. Like, I want to buy a KFC? Leo, call! Leo swallowed, breathed in and called. Yeah, a gruff voice. Eh, uh, we, we, Leo was thinking about a good improvised story. Eva twisted the revolver by 90 degrees, the index finger broke with an audible crunch and Fat Ugly screamed like a witch on fire. Then she punched Fat Ugly into the throat too and took the phone away from Leo. Heard that scream? We just killed your Yuka and 28th dealers and took over. This is now our territory. We have weapons. Lots of weapons. Better weapons than you. Don't dare to come. She hung up and threw the phone into the burned out building stump on the other side of the street. Are you out of your mind? Leo asked, his heart racing. We need weapons. Lots of weapons. They will bring us lots of weapons to match our weapons. Problem solved, Eva said. Leo stared at her. This morning he had woken up and had been hot for her. Look how quickly that can change, from insanely hot to merely insane. Last time I checked, we have no weapons. She picked up the dealer's revolver. One. Oh, and you want to park your car elsewhere. Might get damaged here. Chapter 26 Herbert 
Herbert saw and heard the guarding helicopters first, circling the ever-moving perimeter around the transport. But the Legion team had their covers too close to the road, the attack helicopters several hundred yards behind them. First came the top of the covered spaceship, a first glimpse on the horizon. Then more and more showed through the shimmering heat that reflected on asphalt and desert ground. Finally, he made out the contours of the transport colossus crawling up to their position in slow motion. And the hum of the four power generators added to the whining, chopping noises of the helicopters. Man, this transport vehicle was big and it looked complex. Herbert had done some research about extreme mass transportation, especially the US Army's capabilities. MMTU's and Army journals or YouTube's videos only showed much smaller configuration. But this size coming down the road was something else. Huge, so huge. Handling must be complicated, a job for experienced specialists. No truck drivers needed to apply. That's why the planned conversions of the crew were so important. No one expect for the logistic unit on site had the know-how to maneuver the giant of many wheels. He sighed. So many things that could go wrong, so many dependencies once more. Herbert's heart beat faster. This was it. That ticket out of here. Their opportunity. All the hard work for just this moment. His small team lay alert, everyone rechecking their equipment for the last time. Smitty ran a final communication check, ensuring the readiness. First came Legion's headquarter. Brian? Brian Starling's voice came on, a chemist with a doctoral degree from Harvard. Herbert knew that he was excited as hell to play with a weapon that the world had never seen before. All quiet here. The blanket is up on the roof and on standby, ready to activate on your command. Ten minutes duration on my mark, right? Ten minutes you will get. Got my good old track and field stopwatch with me. Good man, Herbert. Squawked the walkie-talkie with Smitty's voice. Rear team ready, Herbert replied after confirming with his colleagues. He felt his tension and willfully relaxed his shoulders. Don't start shooting too early, Smitty reminded him. You have the first shot, Herbert assured. Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic. And France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. 
Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly, there are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. Covid Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other retailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. Covid Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, buy the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 27 Charles The situation room was quiet. An occasional squawk from the tactical communication channels where Lieutenant Kimmick relayed their status every 15 minutes. The guy handling the console who decided what to show on the various monitors looked outright bored and performed some artistic finger flicking with a ballpoint pen. Well, Charles thought and leaned back in his comfortable command chair for someone who might have been involved in Bin Laden's capture, this is probably an operation below his usual standard. And, let's be honest, the guy had no idea what they were monitoring. All the SATCOM crew could see from above was this giant rectical monster of a multi-wheeled football field with a large white tarp covering something on it. The only other person showing on the video conference monitors was Major Argos, who was looking bored too and out of place. He appeared like a wildcat placed inside an office and probably belonged rather on the battlefield than behind a desk. The two video feeds linked to the transport battalion and air force showed notably empty chairs. Charles sighed. Keeping eyes on the ball seemed only to go that far. Argos read Charles' mind through the wire. Get used to it. The waiting game or the absence? Charles indicated to the monitor. Both. They hate your guts, Argos said. Including you? I'm a man of love, Argos smiled with the knowledge and confidence that he was the meanest MF in any room he had ever entered. Let me guess, because I am CIA? I'm only an analyst, not even a spook, if that helps. All of the above. CIA, office-based, too well-dressed, too little experience. No one likes to get killed in a military operation run by a greenhorn civilian. Charles looked down on his off-the-rack grey suit. Too well-dressed from the people who invented shiny boots? I can take off my tie if this will bring me any credibility with the military. Argos smiled again for the briefest moment. Maybe Charles was bonding with him? Why are you here and they are not? Not even on remote. Sure, the order for this mission came from the incompetent civilian, but everything had been reconfirmed by the president. Argos kept his mouth shut. 
Charles leaned forward. Ah, I see. Esprit de corps. But I understand. Good to know there's someone even more hated than I am. I tell you why I'm here, Doc. Argos pointed into the camera. There are 13 of my ranger brothers down there running a mission, led by my old buddy Frank Bristol. I don't know what you guys do, but it must be mighty important when the president personally orders the transport and gives the command to a wet-behind-ear guy like you. No offense, Doc. But I am here to protect my men from you, your decisions and your potential mistakes. Charles swallowed, avoiding Argos' angry stare. He felt red blood creeping under his skin, some from anger, but some from embarrassment. Because he realized that Argos was right, he was over his head. Totally. The phone beside his seat rang and Charles picked up. Status report! The gruff voice of Nuna Patel rang in Charles' ear. All quiet. Transport rolling. About half time now. ETA unchanged. Are the military guys cooperating? Do you get the support you need? Charles' eyes wandered over the empty conference room videos, but decided to play the diplomat. All good. Click. Charles replaced his own receiver slowly. And a great day to you too, madam. He considered his own position. The military branches doing their jobs as ordered. Everyone was treating him like shit. But Tinkan was moving and was guarded. And at the end of the day, that nightmare was over and the scientists could continue their investigation. The National Security Advisor sends her regards, he told Argos on the screen. Next time, she wants to see you in your mess uniform. You wish, the ranger smiled. Was there any government senior official he liked? The satellite overhead image suddenly showed two circles spreading at the head and rear of the transport, eating up the screen until the whole image consisted of shimmering white. It reminded Charles of an old celluloid movie reel that started to burn in mid-run. He called over to the operator. Hey, your screen just broke down. Chapter 28 Herbert Herbert checked the positions of the two helicopters, one hovering behind the position half a mile away, the other about one mile away from them, guarding the left flank of the transport. Herbert had his rifle rested on a sandbag to increase accuracy, peering over the scope to keep the big picture in sight. Linny lay beside him, her eye glued to her scope, cheeks flushed. His team was designated to attack the rear protection units, one Humvee and one troop transporter trailing the transport by 150 yards, respectively. In the crosshairs of his scope, he saw the gunner on top of the rear troop carrier, the priority first strike target. 
A strafing salvo from those barrels of the Browning.50 machine guns would annihilate Herbert's team within seconds. The helicopters carried even deadlier guns and had a better angle of attack. The desert nests of the Legion Analytics team were totally unprotected from above. There was only the flimsy camouflage cover. It came down to a choreographed sequence. The choppers needed about five seconds to move into a firing position. The machine guns on the trucks a mere two seconds. So the priority was clear. First the machine gunners of the Humvee and the troop transporters had to go, then the helicopters. If the Legion teams missed the sequence or got delayed, it would be game over for them. Herbert became nervous. It had to happen any second now or they would miss their window. He glued his eye to his gun's scope to be ready, the crosshair over the visible body of the gunner of the troop transporter. A determined looking young soldier checking the rear and sides of the transport in sweeping glances. Dead, but he didn't know it yet. Smitty's command came over the calm in a quiet voice. Attack, attack, attack. Herbert tensed his muscles to control the recoil, pulled the trigger as trained last night and let go of a three-round burst, the troop transporter gunner slumping over. Linny shot at almost the same time, taking down the operator of the rear Humvee with the same result. A second later, the bursts from Smitty's position reached their ears like an echo. Herbert could see the bodies of the soldiers hanging limply from the gun towers. Nicole Boyd had spotter duty and confirmed with an enthusiastic voice. Hit and hit, you got them! A launcher's up! Herbert shouted. That was the signal for the other three members of the team to engage. The colleagues stood up, shedding the camouflage tarp that had covered them from sight and sun. All three shouldered the FGM-148 Javelin laser-guided rocket launchers, fire-and-forget quality, each aimed at the rear vehicles, two at the troop transporters, one for the Humvee. And they immediately sent the deadly loads on the way. The surface-to-surface -surface missiles, the most difficult, most expensive and most risky item to procure for the operation, did their job as advertised. The laser sights acquired the target, transmitted the information into the controller unit of the launchers, armed the explosive load and launched the rockets. Within half a second from sighting to the rocket in the air. Surprise was total. The javelins were scaled to defeat modern tanks, a complete overkill against Humvees and troop trucks. The rockets exploded at impact and the vehicles guarding transport vanished in giant fireballs. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. 
And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.aims.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexaimswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out.